This is the gospel of the primal light, the first beginning and the fruitful end, the soaring glory of an eagle's flight, the quiet touch of a beloved friend. This is the gospel of our transformation, water to wine and grain to living bread, blindness to sight and sorrow to elation, and Lazarus himself back from the dead. This is the gospel of all inner meaning, the heart of heaven opened to the earth, a gentle friend on Jesus' bosom leaning, and Nicodemus offered a new birth. No need to search the heavens high above, come close with John and feel the pulse of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance on this third Sunday of Advent to wait expectantly for you. You arrived in the form of a baby over 2,000 years ago, and you will arrive again in the second coming to restore creation. But in between those arrivals, You come into our lives day after day after day. You show up in the thick of trial, in the the mess of grief and chaos. And for that, we thank you. And so this morning, Lord, we expect you to come again into our lives. And we pray, Lord, that in that coming you would transform us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Again, what's great about starting at the beginning is I don't have to set it in its context. So John 1, we were in Mark 1 last week, and we'll be reading the first eight verses of John's gospel in the ESV. So as you are able, friends, would you stand now for the reading of God's word? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light." You may be seated. If John has been described as the pearl of great price among the New Testament writings, and I quote, then one may say that John's prologue is the pearl within the pearl, end quote. The prologue to John's gospel, so the first 18 or so verses, and we'll look at the second half next week, 
This prologue, I think, is unparalleled in its eloquence in the New Testament. Now, passages like Colossians 1, Philippians 2 come close, but I don't think they attain to the heights of John chapter 1. Another scholar writes that tradition assigns the eagle as the symbol for the gospel of John because only the soaring eagle can stare straight into the sun. End quote. So here we are, the third week of Advent, still expecting the arrival of God in Christ. And these verses in John's Gospel take us from the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was baptizing last week, to a time before time, to the very beginning. So let's start then at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Clearly, the author is echoing Genesis chapter 1 here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, etc., etc. Now, this connects the Word, the Logos, to the act of creation, yes, but it also casts the Gospel of John as a tale of new creation, a fulfillment, I would say, of that which came before. Now, whereas in Genesis... We're talking about the beginning of the process of creation. John's beginning is further back than that. Before time even existed. You can think of John chapter 17 when Jesus prays to his Father, Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. But what does John mean by the word here? In Greek, the logos. What does he mean by the word? Now, much ink has been spilled in debates about the background of this concept for John, and it seems that there are two possible sources of inspiration for this concept. The one is the world of Greek philosophy, and the other is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So first, in about 500 BC, a philosopher named Heraclitus who was actually working in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, Heraclitus came up with this concept, the Logos, to suggest a coherent principle that brings order to our chaotic universe. He noticed that in reality as we see it, there is fluctuation, there is disorder, there's a a messiness And so he suggests the Logos as this principle that brings order, coherence, to the universe. Now, Stoic philosophy, a major movement in the Roman Empire, took this up further. And the Jewish philosopher Philo, who wrote in the first century, at the same time as some of the New Testament writings, speaks much about the Logos, this ordering principle in the universe. And so that is kind of what Greek philosophy contributed, and it seems that that might be in the background of John's language here. But given the Jewish biblical texture of his gospel, we would do well to reach into the Hebrew Bible and see what it has to say about the Logos, the Word of God. 
So if you open up the Old Testament, you'll see the word of the Lord, uh, this phrase recurring all throughout. But it means more than just a spoken word. It seems to have a power of its own in the Hebrew Scriptures. The word of the Lord is said to come, to move, to come to the prophet, and it often challenges the prophet, moves him, compels him to do things and share the word with others. The word of the Lord in the Old Testament is said to judge human beings, to pierce them. It illuminates the world. It's spoken of as a light, especially in the Psalms. The word of the Lord is said to heal people and even to create. Let there be light, and there was light. Now, also in the Old Testament, we have this concept of wisdom, which is sometimes capitalized with a capital W, wisdom. And in some of the wisdom books, such as Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, wisdom is spoken of as a being. It's personified. And so in Proverbs 8, we read, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Wisdom. And so we have Greek philosophy suggesting the logos to be this ordering principle in the chaos, and then the word of the Lord in the Old Testament carrying a dynamism, a power of its own. Now, famous New Testament scholar Raymond Brown writes that John's description of the word is far closer, in his view, to biblical and Jewish thought than it is to Greek philosophy. This is what he says. The creative word of God, the same word which came to the prophets, has become personal in Jesus, who is the embodiment of divine revelation. He says, Jesus is divine wisdom, capital W, pre-existent, who is coming to teach men and give them life, end quote. If you keep going into verse 2, it says, He, that is the Word, was in the beginning with God. Now what is so remarkable about this is how little interest there is in metaphysics, philosophy, all these technical debates about the Trinity and how it works. The most important thing in John 1, is that the Word was, that it existed in the beginning. And as we'll see, what the Word does, especially for human beings. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. As early as the second century, this verse was interpreted as a reference to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, this phrase in the ESV, without him was not anything made, I think is a bit weak. Um, that only stress, stresses the agency of the word at creation. I think you can translate this, apart from him was not anything made that was made. Emphasizing the presence, the presence of the Word at creation. 
Now, some think, friends, that the word's involvement in creation means that creation itself is an act of revelation, that it says something to us about God and His nature. Now, this, of course, means that creation is good, that it has intrinsic value, despite what some ancient Christian writers thought, but it also means that creation teaches us about God, almost without words. You could say, then, that the character of the Maker is revealed through that which has been made, creation as revelation. If we keep moving to verse 4, it says, In Him, that is the Word, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, we have an interesting punctuation issue, and it might just be interesting uh, to me, not to other people, but we'll see about that. Let me just read uh, verses 3 and 4 in the ESV to get it on the table, um, and then I'll talk about the issue at hand. So starting at verse 3 in the ESV, we read, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what it says in the ESV. But after this phrase, without him was not anything made, <clears throat> there is a little phrase in Greek, two-word phrase, which either ends the clause that comes before, so that's how the ESV takes it, or it begins the clause which comes after. Now, let me just say, I don't know if you know this, but the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have of John's Gospel have no punctuation, no spaces even. I should have brought an image, uh, but literally all we have are capital Greek letters pushed as closely together as possible to make the most of each sheet of papyrus. So, it is up to scholars to determine where the punctuation marks, which really are in the mind of the writer, where they should go. And I think in this case, many have gotten it wrong. You can see a note in your ESV that shows that they're at least admitting the possibility of another reading. But I think it makes much more sense for this little phrase in Greek to begin the clause which comes after. Now, let me read a translation uh, that expresses this alternative reading, and I'll start from uh, verse 3. If we were to take it that way, this is what it would say. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made period. That which was made from within him was life, and that life was light for men. Now, I think this makes much more sense of the syntax, the flow of thought in the passage, and it's actually indicated by the normal rules of Greek grammar if you look at the phrase that's in question. And this is a reading that many of the church fathers accepted, and even in the critical edition of the Greek New Testament, it puts the period where I have suggested. But how are we to think, friends, of this difference? The difference between made through and made from within. Well, if you think of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, 
we kind of have two episodes in the creation account. So in Genesis 1, we have this very orderly, almost rhythmic account of God speaking and things existing. On day one, let there be light, and there was light, morning and evening, the first day, etc., etc. So God speaks, and it seems that his word does the work of creating. But in Genesis 2, after God had planted this garden in the east, it says that God formed the man, he formed it from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Genesis 1 seems just a bit more distant, more instrumental than Genesis 2, which I think is on purpose. In Genesis 1, God's word brings about creation, and in Genesis 2, God seems to be embodied. He is walking through the garden. He stoops down, takes soil out of the ground, forms it, and then breathes his life into it. I think this is what John might mean by made through and made from within. Most of the universe is created through God the Word. But a very, very, very small portion is created from within God the Word. Now, if you keep reading, verse 5, it says, The light, from the end of verse 4, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, first, I want to talk about life because it's life that is compared with light. Life, this word zoe in John and in his letters too, almost always means eternal life or spiritual life. There's a different word for natural human life. It's not this word. And so what does it mean to compare life with light as he is doing here? Well, I think light is being used uh, symbolically, of course. This is literature and high literature in the prologue. But I think it's meant to evoke the light that we see in Genesis 1. Friends, the first thing God creates when he's making the universe is light. Let there be light. And if we're thinking of a primal light, a source of light, we're probably thinking of the sun, at least as solar system dwellers, human beings. The sun illuminates the darkness of space. It allows one to move, to see. But our sun, our light, provides also the conditions for organic life to exist. So I think light is an apt synonym for life, especially this wellspring of life, this source of life, life of a different order than that which we're used to. It makes sense for John to compare this life, this concentrated life, with the light 
that we see in Genesis 1. Speaking of life, though, the life that God breathed into the very first man was his very own spirit. And I think like the sun is a concentrated form of the light we see all over, the life that God breathed into human beings that we are destined to have is a concentrated form of life. Going back to light, it says that light shines in the darkness. Present tense, this happens all the time. But then it says that the darkness did not overcome it. That's really how this should read. And I think this is a reference to the fall story in Genesis 3, that God breathes his own life into this creature, the human being, and the powers of sin and death, the devil, evil, whatever you want to call it, tried relentlessly to dispel that life, to expel it, but they couldn't fully succeed. So what we see in John 1 is that in the person of Jesus, God the Word made flesh, this life, this concentrated life has been revealed to us, the Son revealed in the Son. Well, then we get John the Baptist. It's like he walks in on this party and just everything gets quiet. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, almost a mundane detail in the context of this passage. But this parallels accounts in the Old Testament that speak about Samson, there was a man, Manoah and his wife, Samuel, there was a man, Elkanah and his wife. These famous figures in the Old Testament through whom God does miraculous things. It says that John the Baptist... The same John we read of last week came, verse 7, as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. We see here that John the Baptist's calling in life is to testify about, to point towards the light made manifest in the person of Christ. His whole life is meant to be an arrow that's just extended toward Jesus. And there's a famous work of art, the Eisenheim altarpiece, which depicts Jesus on the cross and John the Baptist next to him, pointing with an index finger that's about a foot long. That's his life, pointing to Jesus. To summarize what John the author has said thus far, the word which has always existed and to which all human beings and all creation owes its existence breathed its own life into the first man. And that life is now concentrated in Christ who has become flesh, is walking around, and it's John the Baptist's task to bear witness to the saving power of that life. Finally, in verse 8, he, that is, John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
This may appear redundant uh, given the previous verses, but it seems that there were claims being made that John the Baptist was the light, that there were people who were worshiping John the Baptist around this time, and so the author of John's gospel is making it clear that John himself is not the light, but is pointing to the light who is Christ. Now, to summarize this very profound passage, God the Word existed before creation, and all things came to be through Him. But there was one thing that came to be from within Him, and that is life and life eternal. Eternal life, by which I do not mean natural life extended forever, but the very life that God lives, a different mode of life altogether, a a qualitatively different life, that kind of life, was breathed into the first human, and the powers of darkness have tried to expel that life ever since. And friends, in the person of Jesus, that life has become concentrated and embodied as a human, and it's to that life that John the Baptist bears witness. All things came to be through the Word. Apart from the Word, nothing came to be. But that which came to be from within the Word was life and life eternal. It is that life which illuminates us and I think sets us apart from the rest of creation. It is that light which the darkness tries to expel, but which Jesus, Jesus ensures will remain. We as human beings, as, as possessors of this life, We have a claim, friends, a claim to true eternal life, which comes not only through God, but from within God. While God created the universe by speaking it into existence, He created human beings by breathing His life into us. It's that life that the darkness, evil, has tried to expel, and it's that life which we see with burning radiance in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is not just our hearts pulsating forever and ever and ever. It's not just staying alive and not dying while the clock runs round and round. Eternal life, and please hear this, Eternal life is the sublime experience of living not our life, but God's life. It's to have God's blood in our veins, God's breath in our lungs, God's light in our very hearts. It's no wonder, then, that the most famous of the church's fathers Figures like Origen, Gregory, Chrysostom, Augustine, Pope Leo, 
They talk about deification, becoming like God. And there's one church father, Athanasius of Alexandria, who put it so eloquently in his work on the Incarnation from the 4th century. He said, He became what we are so that He might make us what He is. He became what we are so that He might make us what He is. That which came to be from within Him was life. Eternal, divine life. And it is to this life that we lay claim, friends. Receive this life today. Nothing you could ever experience on earth will come close to this life, I promise. This is true life, true light, toward which all human beings run. This is true life, true light, which the darkness will not overcome. Let's pray. You are our life, Jesus. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. May that be our confession every single day that we live. At Christmas, we're not celebrating the giving of gifts per se. We're celebrating the incarnation of God the Word who restores the almost faded image of God within us. Imprint that image within us afresh today. Make us shine with burning radiance so that droves and droves of people this Christmas are drawn to your church, to your body, are at least drawn to think about you, reflect upon you, and perhaps trust in you for the very first time. You are our life. Be our life today. Move away any obstacles that get in the way of our being your hands and feet, Jesus. We love you and thank you so much for this season. Please, please, please make us more like you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.